I'm your host, Rabbi Linda Schreiner Khan, and welcome to Tehillah Talks, where teens engage in honest conversation with their rabbi about what it means to be Jewish in the world today. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Tehillah Talks. And this episode, we are welcoming Farnoosh and Julian and Helena and Bernie as we talk about being a stranger in a strange land. And I'll begin with a a quote from the Torah portion a few weeks ago that speaks of, you know, you were a stranger and you need to treat the stranger remembering that you were once strangers in the land of Egypt. And the Torah goes on to say, when a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not wrong him. The stranger who resides with you shall be as one of your citizens. You shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. And that's in Leviticus. And ultimately, we have in Deuteronomy, it goes even further. For Adonai, your God, is God supreme, and Adonai supreme, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who shows no favor and takes no bribe, but upholds the cause of the fatherless and the widow and befriends the stranger, providing the stranger with food and clothing. You too must befriend the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So we'll begin. Why don't you ask the question that you asked before we turned on the mic, uh, and we'll go from there. What did I ask? Which uh, part of it? Was how Farnish came to him, you know. Yeah. Well, why don't you just go, like, how, what's your background, I guess? Or... Sure. So I was born in Tehran, Iran. I, we, there was a cultural revolution a change in, in 1979. I was nine years old at the time. And my, my family was not religious. My parents were intellectuals and they were socialists and I really wasn't born in a religion and we had a lot of freedom in a secular society. That revolution changed the whole country into an Islamic dictatorship and there was a lot of social freedom that was taken away and you basically had to live a religious life to be comfortable and not be bothered. And there was a lot of other issues. So... We, my parents decided to leave, and it took a while before they were able to get everything together. There was a, also there was they started a war. There was a lot of um, scary things which I can I can get into. So we decided to leave the country, and we had to go through several different countries before we can come to the U.S. So any questions? I'm going to ask you to interrupt, Farnish, so that mm-hmm. we can get your questions in as something comes up and you want more clarification. Mm-hmm. Did you want to leave or stay there? At the time, I wanted to leave because I have three brothers and I was being trained to become an Olympian for an Iranian national team because I was Wait, very which good. sport? Volleyball. Oh, cool. And uh, after the revolution, uh, two years later, they were like, no you have <laughs> no, no, you could play, but you, only, you have to wear all these outfits. Like mm. you have to cover your whole body and mm. you can only play in a closed gym that no one can see you other, except women. So I felt really suffocated and it was really depressing for me to see my lifestyle is changing so much. 
compared to my brothers. My brothers had the same life. Nothing changed for them. But everything about my life changed. And, and, you, were, and you were nine at the time. Yeah, and I, but by the time I was 12, when we were, we, we were getting ready to leave, it took a couple, a year and a half or two years until the Islamic Republic took all the, changed the constitution and made all the, these restrictive laws. So yeah, it was, it was 1982 when everything really became scary for me. So did your brothers also want to leave or were they okay staying since their lives weren't changing? They also wanted to leave because they had to serve in the military. Ah. They had no choice. Even though they were teenagers, they had to serve in the military. And, and we didn't believe in fighting that war and we wanted to get out. Mm-hmm. This was the Iran-Iraq war. Yeah, Iran-Iraq war, yeah. So what was the process of getting to America like? Were you applying for asylum or was it kind of, I don't I have no clue what that's like. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, there's a lot of... A lot I can talk about, but I was lucky because my father was a, a deputy minister of Iranian national oil ministry at the time. So he was able to leave the country with the government passport. So we were able to leave, but we had to get a visa to come into the U.S. So uh, we were able to come in as, as a visa and, and we had a lot of relatives here already. Oh, cool. So they helped us to come here. We didn't have to get asylum. So did he work with, like, um, British or American oil companies? Because I've heard that, like, a lot of um, the oil refining companies that we have today started with Iran. Iran, yes, exactly. So my father comes from a family of people who had their lives uh, with oil. And my grandfather worked in the refinery um, (laughs) back uh, when it was being built in 1900. Actually, my grandfather was born in where the city where the first old refinery was built and he started working there and then generation my my all of my uncles even though they were doctors they became doctors for the oil ministry so were you the only part of your family that left it did everybody kind of see the writing on the wall and go pretty much everybody left my from my uncles there's only one uncle that stayed but everybody else. My, my father had four brothers and uh, one sister, and they all have left the country, except one state. Mm-hmm. Um, when you came to America, did you or your family feel any pressure to assimilate or change any part of your identity? Oh, yeah. So uh, that's a very good question, and, and there's a lot of uh, layers to that. Number one, feeling pressure to assimilate. So being Iranian is highly political because of the geopolitical and oil and and politics. And and the time when we moved, it was exactly right around after the hostages were released. So, But that was still very... uh, People remembered that. I don't know if you guys saw the movie Argo a few years ago. Yeah, that was a good movie. Although I have my criticism about it, mm-hmm. because even though I ran away from Iran, I still love that country and I love the people. And it, it breaks my heart when I see the people representation is not exactly accurate. Um, but anyway, it was a good story. It was a good movie. I think everyone should see it. So we, we were we, we felt under attack, not in New York. My father couldn't find a job in New York. So he was he had friends that worked for Shell Oil in Texas. So he moved, he moved down to Texas. And there uh, we felt, uh, I was scared and often had to make sure not to disclose my ethnicity because I could pass for 
Italian or, or uh, Greek or any Euro- European. So I usually didn't talk about my ethnicity and people didn't think because the image at the time they had people in the media was this angry people that are like veiled and scary. So then they didn't believe that I was Iranian. So I kept it quiet and that helped me to assimilate faster. Did you keep it quiet from people that you got close to in school? Yeah. Yeah. So actually, and this is a good story to say, my family moved to a a Jewish neighborhood, but my school wasn't a private school. It was a public school because we couldn't afford private school. There was only one Jewish girl in my class and she became my best friend. And I was able to be honest with her, with my broken English at the time. Uh, I was a little younger than you guys. So... That was actually my introduction to learning about Judaism as a teenager. Mm-hmm. I felt safe with her. This was in New York? Yeah, this no, was in, in Texas. Texas. In Texas? Houston, Texas? Uh, Houston, Texas. Ah, cool. Yeah. So, I mean, I've only been to Houston once, but it's a, it's a very spread out city. Yeah. It has a downtown now. I don't know what it was like growing up, but... No, back then in the 80s, it wasn't uh, like what it is now. That's become much more metropolitan. Mm-hmm. So when I was in, the only time I've been to Houston was in the '80s, and it was very spread out. Mm-hmm. And as a New Yorker coming to Houston, the first thing I noticed was the signs uh, that said you can buy a gun here, and that to oh, me, yeah. you know, like big, big billboards, guns sold here. And I thought I'm in another country now, mm-hmm. uh, which is another. It, it, it's America, but it's a very different kind of America. Mm-hmm. So, the Texans would argue, like, the whole thing about Texas, they think they're their own country. They know? do think. The they Lone Star Republic. They once yeah. were in their own exactly. country, right? Yeah. It's, I'm not saying all Texans think that. I'm just like... No, it just, it's just... Motto. When I hear Texas, and particularly Houston, you know, in the middle of the summer, you walk into a highly uh, air-conditioned restaurant that has a roaring fire. So that, to me, epitomizes Houston. Uh, <laughs> but But... Getting, I know it's really off topic, but mm. so getting back to your experience, so you were one person at home mm-hmm. in the private sphere mm-hmm. and another person in the public sphere. Yeah. So yeah. what I just read from the Torah was not true for you. You couldn't be fully yourself. No, but I knew that I. That's what I had to do to. Survive and be successful in my new home. I had to learn a new language, become really good at it, and talk like a native, which that never happened. I still have a very thick accent, but I'm proud of it now. I'm proud of everything I did. But as a teenager, there's a lot of pressure to be popular, you know. So, yeah, it wasn't easy, but it was a fact of life for me. So I got adjusted. To so it. that that leads me to another question. So if you tell people you were European, I didn't tell them. I just didn't disclose information. I let them think what whatever they want. So they didn't. <laughs> so they didn't try to speak to you in Italian or Greek or whatever. No, no. And if they try to ask me where you're from, I try to avoid answering it as much yeah. as possible. But people in Texas always ask you. Oh, I used to tell them I'm from New York. Because my family just moved out. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> I used to, and th- because they think New York is a different country, and they yeah. didn't. They thought my accent was a New Yorker accent. <laughs> <laughs> they really did. Yeah. They there, really did. Was there ever a time when, like, you were in a class and they were discussing Iran, and you were kind of like, you know, wanted to chime in or? No, I was very quiet back mm-hmm. then because back then, actually, the uh, Texans were shooting a lot of Iranians. 
Really? Like you would hear on the news that some college student got shot because he was Iranian. And so I was quiet. I was not going to say anything. It was, yeah, you have to just listen and not say anything. It was. And you, and you used your name, your actual name. Oh, that's a good, good. Yeah. So I started working at the diner in my neighborhood and then I was afraid of the people that came in. So I I changed my name at the diner with my name tag to Faye. For the longest time throughout college, when I was in Texas, I used to go by Faye. Mm. And actually, at the time, I thought of changing it. But I, for some reason, I was too proud of my name and actually never changed it. Yeah, that seems like a downgrade. Like, no offense to any Faye, but like, <laughs> she's just like, it's, a way, it's way more substantial. So I went by Faye in public world. Only yeah. the people that I trusted, I would tell my real mm. name. And they would call me Farnoosh, but mm. or at home. Or relatives, but in the public world, I was Faye. Mm-hmm. So, so like this is kind of a more general question, but like, mm-hmm. what's your profession? What did you end up doing once you got out of college? Or? Very good question. So, I started working as a waitress at at, at the age of seventeen. Uh, so, and throughout that, I put myself through college. I wanted to become a doctor, came from a family of doctors and being Iranian, uh, Persian, it's, you know, very similar to all of the uh, cultures that are rooted in the Middle East, uh, that you have to become a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. So, you know, that's what I did. And I, I studied biology and, um, it took me a long time to get my a green card, which that allowed me to have freedom to go to graduate school. And so I worked as a, a technician in a research laboratory, and that's how I got my green card. They uh, sponsored me, and I had to work there for eight years. But at the same time, I learned a lot from biological. It was a molecular biology laboratory for prostate cancer. Wow. Yeah, so I learned a lot. I trained a lot of graduate students and a lot of PhD and postdocs. And and then after I got my green card, then I went to graduate school, got a master's in health administration. And then I went to medical school. And after that, I worked in the hospital for a while. Then I went to biotech industry because it gives you more freedom to do the research you want to do. So I stayed in, I dedicated my whole life into oncology and I do oncology research, neuro-oncology for a Israeli company uh, as a medical director. That's amazing. Thank you. Um, Can I ask, this might seem a little silly, but like, when you came to the United States, did you keep um, playing volleyball? Oh, you, very, yes. Did you, <laughs> that's I a good did. question. That's a very good question. <laughs> yes, I, I went, uh, joined my uh, high school. But by the time I got into high school, I was already a, a, like a senior. Uh-huh. So I was really barely finishing. So I didn't really get to know my teammates. And I hadn't played for a long time because it took, uh, we were in Istanbul for nine months and then we were in Berlin for three months and then London for a month before we came to the U.S. So I, and so I started playing, but I didn't speak English really well, mm-hmm. but I was able to make the tryouts to make the team. But I wasn't the star player who was going to be an Olympian. Mm-hmm. So it seems it, like a movie or something. I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was very sad. And then my father used to call me Nushi. So he told me to tell my coach, my teammates, because they couldn't pronounce Farnoosh. And so 
they were from Texas. They didn't they didn't see any farnoosh in their lives. It's not like you guys live in New York, so you have exposure to different cultures. So I told my coach, my name is Nushi, and she kept calling me Sushi. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I, as a teenager, that really hurt my insecurity about. You hear on the news all the bad things about your people, and then my coach is making saying Sushi, and then she was laughing, but she wasn't making fun of my name. My insecurity, I felt like she was making fun of my name. So I kept telling my dad, I don't like my name, change my name, you know. And he kept telling me, Nushi is a nice name. It's why, why, do you, why don't you like it? I just went home and cried. And so I had a very hard time in the volleyball team. So I didn't, I played, but I didn't play. And I tried to try out for college. I played for my freshman year in college and sophomore year. But I transferred schools and um, I tried out for this other better school and I didn't make the team. But I stayed involved with the volleyball team for school. After college, I, I started a women's volleyball organization. And so I just we had like games and I played until very recently. How do you have time for that one? Being a doctor, <laughs> I make time. I haven't played now for a couple of years. So I know it's like very difficult to like visit Iran, but have you been back since you left? Yeah, I went back in 2016. My father passed away five years ago. Uh, he, he was in Houston. He's actually buried in Houston. He had a lot of property and money in Iran, so I, I went back. My brothers would refuse to go back, so I was the only ones brave enough why, to go why back. Not? Because they're afraid uh, of the government and they were afraid to go back. And nobody speaks Farsi or Persian really well. So I don't either. I, my Persian is now down to like fifth grade level if I'm lucky. I don't even think that. So I went back and I changed everything to my name. But because of the sanctions, I couldn't bring anything back. And I was going to go back. But things got worse. Uh, this is 2016. So I, I, after our new president who put a travel ban, so that government said, "Oh, we won't let uh, the American citizens in in the in our country either." So it created more barrier, and I didn't want to risk. I have too much to lose. This is my home. I don't want to uh, deal with the governments fighting with each other. So I don't think I ever go back. Mm. Unfortunately, how how did it change? Oh, good question. Uh, I couldn't stop crying because it's not my country. Yeah. It's like it. I the whole time I was there for eight days and I would go out and I would cry because this is such a beautiful old country with seven, eight thousand years of history. But I, I, it was for it was foreign to me. It was really hard. That's it was really very difficult. It was very upsetting. So for you, America has really become your home. Yeah. America. I think that's the that sense of dislocation is not uncommon for somebody who's a refugee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you came here comparatively young. Mm-hmm. I compare yeah. you to my mother, or, mm-hmm. you know, that generation after the after mm-hmm. the Holocaust. But it, it's really hard to, to, to put roots in. So I'm going to look at two of you who are sitting here uh, who have parents who are born in other places. Mm-hmm. Um you know, is England still your dad's home? Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think, I mean, he recently became an American citizen, but yeah, I, I think he definitely considers England his home. That's where 100% of his family is. You know, he also, England is not the worst country to immigrate from. You know what I mean? It's pretty, there's a, 
it's it's a lot easier than I would think coming from a different language or whatever. But um, he did have to, you know, leave his job behind, you know, sell all his stuff, you know, leaving your family's hard. And he had to like for his profession, get recertified and all this stuff. It took a long time. It was it was difficult. So, you know, that's something that he's mentioned to me, at least. So even in the best of cases, I think there's still obstacles. Well, my dad, he still isn't an American citizen. I don't know if he wants to be, but um, when he he came here when he was in college to play Gaelic football, and then he went to graduate school here and got his PhD. And um, uh, part of what he was, part of why he came here was because in Ireland there weren't any jobs for the field of like research and the profession he wanted which is like sports science research and so he could find that in America but he had to sort of leave his huge family behind (laughs) um but yeah he travels back like once a year he I think he still considers Ireland is still his home. Bernie your grandfather was from England right Mm -hmm. so were those ties sort of released or that you know how did that impact the rest of the family? Well, I know he traveled a lot for his work. So he was like away, but not just to England, to Belgium a lot and uh, Ireland as well. So I know he does have some family in England. I don't know any of my family that lives there. There's We've definitely like talked about going there. I think like they might have been like kind of thinking of doing, like, a family trip uh, before he passed away, but they didn't really get a chance to. But I don't know... I know he came here um, after World War II as a, a veteran. Is The captain of his uh, ship just recommended a job to him. And I don't know too much about the process or if it was difficult or much about that. But, so, I mean, that's something... So, of the five of us sitting here, we all have some of that... Mm-hmm. in different ways and obviously for you for it's the most immediate mm-hmm. i'm just you know mm-hmm. but it- but um it's interesting you know you the u.s has become my home especially new i consider new york my home because the reason i love new york so much is because it reminds me of tehran uh, i don't know if you guys know the image of tehran tehran is a metropolitan city of uh, 18 million people right wow. now and uh the high rises lifestyle is very similar, and that's why I love being in New York. And one thing, even though my country is not the country that I was raised in, I still consider it my original home, and I'm very proud of my heritage. I'm proud of my people, and all that. But at the same time, I know it's not my home anymore. You know, because I would never be comfortable. So I wonder about your mother. Was she did, was she also proud of her heritage? Or- so that was the thing. She and her best friend always had this conversation when they would go to Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, her friend would say, ah, we're going home. And my mother said, that isn't my home. They threw me out. <laughs> uh, That's <pretty> <laughs> You know, and... Uh, so that was a point of disagreement for these two women who grew who knew each other since they were I don't know, two or three years old, right? Mm-hmm. So their point of view was different. For my mother, uh, Germany was not her home. Mm-hmm. And the 10 years that she spent in China, I think, helped solidify that transition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And 
yeah, she was very grateful that America was was the place she ended up. She's mm-hmm. very grateful. Yeah. Culturally, you know, again, New York, coming from Berlin, mm-hmm. New York uh, is the place. If you're coming from a large city, it's yeah. not, it's it's easy. It's hard if you're coming from a, an agricultural background mm-hmm. or something like that, then that's a it's, a, it's a different kind of transition. But for her, I think she just, she loved New York. Mm-hmm. Yes, every day I'm grateful to be in New York and I'm grateful to be an American and being able to participate in democracy, even though the, sometimes we feel like the democracy is being bought by capitalists and billionaires here. But still, I think I'm grateful because still there's some hope for us here than where I was born. So, yeah, I'm also I feel like this is home. At the same time, I want, I always worry that I want people to know that I'm very proud of my Persian background because a lot of the cultures of the world have uh, something in common because that's how old it is. But that's not related to what's going on with the country now. So, right. We used to have a member whose family was Iraqi and she would always talk about the... 3,000 plus year Jewish history in mm-hmm. what was Babylonia, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so with that part of the world, I mean, was was welcome to Jews. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that you had one grandparent who was mm-hmm. Jewish. How mm-hmm. did that, was that something that was talked about or not really? No, that was not talked about. Because you were uh, in a Muslim majority a country where that was the norm or that was the common practice. So we didn't really talk about that much. But I always felt very much connected and close to her more than anybody else. So you mentioned your family were like socialists. How does the... But your dad was like an oil, you know, Mm -hmm. deputy. How does that go together? Oh, very good question. My father uh, actually... I don't remember exact the year, but when he, I know when he was 19, he was uh, imprisoned for being a communist and he was tortured because uh, there was, uh, the government was going through some changes. At the time, uh, there was this guy, his name was a leader who wanted to uh, nationalize the oil. Uh, his name was Mossadegh and all of his followers were put in prison with the help of British and the American government to overthrow uh, his leadership. He had be- he became the uh, prime minister in Iran. And my father was part of those young uh, college kids who were supporting him. So And he was tortured. So I think something changed and uh, he wanted to uh, be successful. And mm-hmm. he sort of uh, moved up the ladder in the... The oil ministry. Very good question, yeah. Interesting. You also mentioned that your family was like Zoroastrian. Did you observe any Zoroastrianism? Like, what is that like? Because I've heard that it's a really ancient religion, but I'm not... Like, it what? is a very ancient religion, and that's that's our heritage. Um, we it's And one thing I love about Judaism, which we can talk about the, the reason why I decided... 
to make the conversion is uh, there's a lot of parallel similarities. It's an agricultural religion. Everything is based on what's happening with the earth. And we celebrate like the New Year is first day of spring simply because the, the flowers bloom. It's very much in touch with what's going on with earth. Mm-hmm. And we have, uh, there are actually a, a lot of the Zoroastrian holidays are in parallel with Jewish holidays. And Zoroastrian holidays are uh, as many, not as many as Jewish holidays, but very close. <laughs> <laughs> They're very close. And the holidays, the meaning of the holidays. And that's why Judaism means so much to yeah. me. So what is uh, what does practicing Zoroastrianism look like, or what did it look like? So Zoroastrianism, uh, there are three basic ethics, which again some similarities. There, you say uh, they say in Persian, "Goftarenik, kerdarenik, didarenik." So it's like good deed. Uh, basically, it says, uh, say the, be kind, say kind things to people, think positive about people and the things around you, and, and do the right thing for the environment around you. So these are the three basic things they live in. And, and they believe in uh, fire, there are fire temples. Mm-hmm. They believe in fire and water simply because at the time, fire and water were the yeah, basic needs of uh, human uh, civilization. And uh, there's there's a lot more detail, but again, I wasn't really raised yeah. Zoroastrian. I just know the holidays and these basic thoughts. Okay, interesting. So, can you talk a little more about like converting to Judaism and like when you like wanted to do that? A very good question. So, I always felt very connected to Judaism since I was little. But because I, I never thought I would think about it, it sort of a religion because I grew up socialist and my parents really were, we, we didn't have uh, any learning about religion. It's just like we're Persian, we're Zoroastrians, we have Muslim relatives, I mean Jewish relatives, but we didn't really practice anything. So I can tell you this is something that I always thought about growing up. But I was too busy with, uh, you know, being an immigrant, finding a home, building a home for myself, and then college and education. But I remember 15 years ago, a colleague of mine at Mount Sinai, her son had, has, had a bar mitzvah, and she was in Brooklyn and in Borough Park. So we went to the synagogue, and during the services... He picked up the Torah and he started walking around and I touched the Torah and I really, my heart just melted mm-hmm. and I felt comfort that I don't know how to explain. That stayed with me 15 years ago. And uh, so this is, again, it reassured me this is something I want to do. And I have been thinking about it and I never thought I would do it, but I decided to do it. My partner, Nahama brought me to Tahila three years ago, a little over three years ago. And I really felt safe in this community. And I decided that I'm going to study with Rabbi Linda because she also uh, made me feel very safe, which I have never felt safe with uh, anywhere else. So that's the reason. That's really powerful. Amazing. 
Thank you. <laughs> you should be like the poster child for Judaism. <laughs> My heart melts in. Like, they should put that on a banner or something. It did. It did. And I think it's because there's so much, as you study Judaism, there's so much similarity for as someone who's a nomad, someone who had to leave home and constantly had to leave to find something comfortable. And um, I just, when I read the prayers, I I feel a lot. And then also feeling connected to a community. It's just healing. It's really healing for me. Uh, This is a little going back to before, but is there anything now that you wish you could, I don't know, tell your younger self when you were in Texas sort of transitioning to... America. Mm-hmm. Very good question. I actually, when I came uh, to, when I maybe moved to Texas, I was really miserable, and I was. I used to beg my parents to go back to Iran, and I was saying, even how terrible that country is, but it's, it's better than Texas. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's Texas people. <laughs> uh, we don't have to hide about who we are. We can be ourselves. And it's it's our land. It's where we were where we're from. It's because it was really hard. But if I if I look back and see what I could have done different, I really don't think I I would say to do anything different because I had to survive, and I had to learn so many different things on my own to survive. And you had to go through what you went through yeah. in order to become who you are. Yeah, and I'm proud of all of it. You know, of course, I made a lot of mistakes throughout, but it made mistakes made me a better person. So one thing I can teach you guys, don't ever be afraid of failure. Failure is a good thing because it makes you a stronger person and you know not to do that mistake again. I think that's a really important statement because we're living in a time where uh, oftentimes kids are not allowed to fail. Yeah. <laughs> are protected from failure. And uh, I still remember uh, my cousin telling me when I, when I was I don't know, 15, 16, if you fail and you fall, the big thing is to get up and start all over again. And I thought, really? Because she was you know, older than I am. And what are you talking about? But yeah, exactly. It's just, it's just an opportunity for rebirth. Mm-hmm. But I want to also tell you about my experience at that bar mitzvah. One other thing I felt was like the community, like I felt part of the community for the first time. Like people, like I, I remember I was like looking at, you know, as the, as the rabbi was reading and he would say what page number. And I have never actually had never opened the Torah to read it like that. And like the people would ask me, oh, what is it? And if you were asking me questions and I was just, and I would answer it. And I was like, oh, this is like home. Okay. And they were treating me such, I was welcome there. Mm -hmm. And I just felt, it felt nice. It felt nice for a change because uh, as an immigrant, uh, you never, you're always an outsider. You don't know if you're welcome. Mm -hmm. You always have to evaluate your environment before and I think the big difference for you and for my family is that they hung out mostly with people who had been through this similar experience Mm -hmm. whereas for you you were doing this with your family but pretty much solo yeah I left I had to leave my family because my, my expectation was for me to get married and I even mean with just uh, even just with your family. Yeah. You weren't living in a in a an Iranian community. Oh yeah, no, I didn't. That's no, what I'm no. saying. Whereas, right, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right. 
Are, are there, like, large Iranian communities in New York City or America? Like, is that a thing? Yeah, so a lot of them moved. Yeah, I think there are about four to five million Iranians. Wow. Uh, a lot of them moved to Los Angeles and uh, D.C. Mm-hmm. There are some in Great Neck. Great Neck. Yeah, we have a community. There's a big Jewish uh, Iranian community in Great Neck. Yeah. Uh, That's cool. <laughs> it is, yeah. Yeah. I have a more, like, political question or whatever, uh-huh. but how did you feel about the Iran nuclear deal? Like, as somebody who has connections to Israel and Iran. So, very good question. I was going to talk about that. Again, uh, being proud of who you, who you are, what your heritage is, I was very uh, impressed by how Obama and John Kerry handled Iran, and they were able to come up with the negotiation to, that they could talk to these people, because at least they would be more transparent and um, I, of course, don't like how this administration deals with that, them because the more you alienate these people, the more difficult you can manage them. Um, so, yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah. So I, we have time for like one more round robin of questions or thoughts. Or so I'll start with you, Bernie, if you have anything and sort of. Not, not, so you don't have. Is there so anything that you would like to tell us about? Yeah. Or? Thank you, Julian. <laughs> yeah, so tell me what you, what you love about your Judaism. Tell me, do you ever think about it that way or? I go first. All right, I'm going to go first. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I definitely get a lot of um, support from Tehillah, like, a ridiculous amount of support. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, it's being able to walk in somewhere and know that you're, like you said, welcome. And it's, uh, and also what you said about like the Torah and that kind of special moment. Like I've definitely had those moments where I've been like, you know, this is really, you know, spiritual and peaceful. And so I, I like that. And I also like the degree of freedom that I have. Like I'm not, you know, super religious on a daily basis. But yeah, I like being able to kind of, I like being able to do this and be a part of Tehillah Talks and, and yeah, be able to represent my community. That's a big thing that, you know, I'm proud of. How about you, Elena? Um, Well, I've always been fortunate enough to feel welcome um, as a, not just in this community, but as, as a Jewish person in New York. And my school is predominantly Jewish. Um, and so I've never felt like not welcome because of my Jewish identity. And I've been very lucky for that. Mm. And within the Tequila community, I, I mean, I feel very welcome. And I don't, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We do a lot of welcoming. Yeah. <laughs> you can come in and be like a neo-Nazi. We'd be like, oh, take a seat right there. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm kidding, but like... I'm sure my, my granddaughter goes, no, yeah. no, no. <laughs> all right, all right. But we could probably convert them if we tried. Like, like I'm just... All right, maybe not a neo-Nazi, but like anybody else, basically. Right. Yeah, I mean, personally, I, I think I've had the privilege to not really have to think about being Jewish that much. I also go to a school that's predominantly Jewish, so... It's kind of uh, the norm. It's it's like almost a 50-50 split, but it's definitely totally acceptable. And then also, you know, being at Tequila, very accepting, very welcoming. It's always nice to, you know, see everyone come in and, you know, see all the people that I've seen for so, so many years, say hello, you know, talk to them a little bit. So I guess it's, for me, a lot of what I love about being Jewish is like that personal connection through, especially through Tequila, like 
getting to meet these really interesting people like you <laughs> and um, getting to know them and talk to them. So I think that's definitely one big thing for me. Bottom line, come to Tequila. If you're listening to this, you know, stop by. Even if you're in Spain. Yeah, like, take a, you know, we'll help you pay for the flight. Like, stop by, you know, see if this is all we have time. I want to ask about language Hebrew. When I... Uh, so I, I love Hebrew because I feel like uh, my language that I was raised with, there's a, there's always similarities in every line in prayers. There's always one word that I find that has a similar meaning. So what do you guys, how do you feel about learning Hebrew and what's your experience about Hebrew? All right, I'm going to go first. Cause I'm <laughs> I don't know. I was like, I was dyslexic when I was younger, so... You know, I would definitely was like not super enthusiastic about learning another <laughs> language, but you know, it's all right. I mean, I don't speak it. I wish I could, but um, I think it's it's definitely it's definitely like when I hear it, it conjures certain emotions. But yeah, yeah, I never. I mean, I never really got to learn more than the letters and putting words together. But um, I think later in my life, I want to explore that more because I think Judaism is such a big part of my identity, and that would just connect me more to. Yeah, I, w- I always found in Hebrew school learning about, like, the roots and stuff. That we didn't do a ton, but, you know, just basic, like, roots and how words are constructed and vowels. And I barely know anything. Most of it would be from prayers, you know, words that come up in every single prayer. Mm-hmm. But it is, I find it a really interesting language. And um, I couldn't understand it if you started speaking to me <laughs> in it. But definitely, like, looking into it from at least... Uh, at the very least, from, like, a technical perspective, I found very interesting. Also, being able to, like, some of the prayers I know or some of the songs I know by heart. So, like, being able to sing along, even though I'm sure I'm, like, mispronouncing a lot of it. Like, that's really cool to just, like, fake it for a little bit. Yeah. And, yeah. So, I, I want to thank you all for coming tonight and uh, and having this conversation with Fenish And Fenish, thank you for letting us ask you all these questions and and we hope that you feel like you have been welcomed and that you are no longer the stranger but that you are actually the friend Mm -hmm. and the neighbor and the person that we care about because that's really the place that we want to be that's why i feel already very much so right (laughs) thank you all so much Thank you for taking the time to listen to Tehillah Talks. For more information about Tehillah, go to congregationtehillah.org. Tune in next time when our teens continue to reflect on issues of the day through a Jewish lens.